you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to the book of Haggai? If you're not sure where that is, you can find the Gospel of Matthew at the first of the New Testament. Turn back three books. Or you can use the table of contents. Whatever, or you can look on the screen. We're here to please. All right. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Haggai. As we have throughout the whole series on the Minor Prophets, we'll be preaching the whole book. Uh, but I just want to start off by reading chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. So Haggai chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, says, In the second year of Darius, the king, the king of Persia, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time is not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does not does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hill and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, which each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, the oil, and what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. Let's pray to the Lord together. Heavenly Father, we come now and we bow ourselves before you on Resurrection Sunday. And Father, as we read about the renewal of the covenant of your people with you, I pray, Father, that you would find in us hearts that are quick to repent, quick to turn, and and sincere in renewing our commitment to you today. Lord, reinvigorate our faith by the hope of the resurrection. God, forgive us for self-centered living. Forgive us for self-indulgent living. Lord, let us see that tethered to you is a greater hope, a greater joy, and a deeper peace. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So VR goggles are all the rage right now. Probably many of you, uh, for Christmas, for a birthday, maybe for Easter, your kids have been on you about getting you some VR goggles. You're like Meg and I, you realize those things are not cheap, by the way. They are quite expensive. But what VR goggles do is they allow you to live in a virtual reality that feels very much like actual reality. And in this virtual reality, you can really go anywhere that you want to go and do anything that you want to do and accomplish things that otherwise would be impossible. You can go on a safari and see T-Rex. You can tightrope across Niagara Falls. You can actually play with Tiger Woods in the Masters. But the thing about the way they accomplish this virtual reality is they put these goggles on you that block out all other lines of sight that prevent your peripheral vision. And so what, by, by focusing you only on this three-dimensional screen and blocking out all the other lines of sight, they're able to make that which is pretend, that which is 
virtual feel as though it is the only reality, and they're able to make actual reality feel as though it's non-existent at all. And my experience as a counselor, my experience as a pastor, my experience as a fellow sufferer is that suffering has an experience that's very similar to this. That very often our suffering in this life is similar to to wearing goggles and that everything that we see is viewed through the lens of that suffering, viewed through the lens of that trauma, of that diagnosis of the hardship of your marriage or the rebellion of your children or the frustration of your job. And it's like it becomes so, we become so focused on the suffering, seeing it in everywhere that we look, that all the other lines of sight in our lives are gone. But, but if we're able to pull back from those goggles just a bit, if we're able to pull back from those lenses just enough so that our peripheral vision begins to be restored, so that we're able to start seeing the, the broader context, when all things are considered, it turns out very often there is far more hope in the situation than we're prone to believe. Well, this very much gets to the center of Haggai's prophecy to Israel. So Israel had been the the northern kingdom, the top ten tribes. They had been taken away hundreds of years ago, conquered by the Assyrians, carried off into exile. Then the Babylonians came and they got the southern kingdom. And they marched off the other two tribes, the final two tribes, off into exile. And for 70 years they lived as slaves to the Babylonians until, by surprise, the child of promise, Isaiah 9, has a short-term fulfillment in a Persian king by the name of Cyrus. And Cyrus comes in, joined in, having conquered the Medes, and he overthrows what was once thought to be unthinkable, the mighty Babylonians. And he issues a decree. Cyrus's decree says that all of the lands that had been conquered by Babylon, all of the peoples that had lived enslaved, all of those that had been exiled from their lands can now return home. And among those are Israel. And so you can imagine the the excitement, even the hysteria, as those who are the oldest, they remember their homeland and can't wait to get back. Those who are the youngest have never seen it. They've only heard about it in stories. And so there is a sense of euphoria going back as they sing the songs of ascent that David has written as they walk up to Mount Zion. But when they get there, what they find is that Jerusalem, the city of David, the city of God, is nothing but ruins. The once transcendent tower, the once transcendent temple of Solomon has been reduced to rubble. They try at first to, to rebuild it. They try at first, but, but they quickly discover it's not going to be as easy as they thought. It's not going to be what they had hoped to experience. And immediately they recognize that this idea of putting the pieces of their lives back together and having a fresh start is not nearly as easy as they had hoped. And you may have an experience like that. You may can identify with that this morning. You've held out hope and you've held out hope, but it seems like life is one set of ruins after another, one hardship after another, bad news after bad news, good money after bad. And time and again you've thought, I'll just put my life back together and I'll I'll start new once again, only to discover it's far more difficult than you thought it would be. Haggai is written for people like you. Haggai is written for people like me. To give us considerations in the midst of our ruins. Considerations as we try to see our lives resurrected from the rubble of this earth. So I want us to see three considerations this morning from the book of Haggai. First, I want you to see that you should consider your waves. Consider 
your ways. One of the surprising effects of suffering is that suffering often makes us selfish. It often fills us with self-pity. And self-pity eliminates empathy because I've got my own problems. It eliminates charity because I have to take care of myself. It eliminates sensitivity because I've been dealt harshly with. And so suffering often leads to self-pity. And self-pity is best described as self-centeredness. And self-centeredness is the starting place for all kinds of sins and all kinds of miseries. As Israel had returned home to Jerusalem, they had tried in the early years to resurrect the temple of Solomon. But what they found out was, was that their Persian captors, their Persian oppressors weren't quite as gracious as they hoped they would be. And they underwent oppression for their native and persecution for their faith. And they found it to be difficult and so they gave up. And in the midst of giving up, what they decided they would do is they would turn inward. They would turn inward, and since they couldn't build the temple, they would just build for themselves the best life that they could to make themselves as happy as they can be. And from there we see a pattern begin to emerge that I believe, in my experience, is often a reflex of us as sinners when we begin to suffer and endure the ruins of our life. That suffering often leads to self-pity, and then self-pity often turns to self-indulgence. There's a comparison that's being made here, that's being made by God. There are four oracles, is the way the book of Haggai is laid out. We're looking at the first right now. And in this first oracle, he's making a comparison. And the purpose of him making the comparison is for them to see what their values are, to identify their priorities, and to see how they're amiss. And so he brings up the house. He says, thus says the Lord, these people say the time has not yet come to build the house of the Lord. And so he's talking here about the temple. And then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. He says, is it a time for you yourselves then to dwell in paneled houses while this house, the temple, lies in ruins? And so he's making a comparison here between the house of God and the houses of his people. He says, as I look across Israel, I can't help but notice two things. First of all, my house is ruins. My house is rubble. And my people seem to be okay with it. And while my house is ruins and my house is rubble, when I look at their houses, their houses are opulent. Their houses are extravagant. They're paneled walls. You have to understand that this was a time that paneled walls was quite a luxury. It was something that was only reserved for palaces. In Israel, they did not have a climate that allowed for large trees and large cedars. And so they weren't able to line the inner walls of their home. The inner walls of their home were just the same as the exterior. There was just mud and rock and and hay and straw that was plugged into every little hole that you could see. But there was a house that was supposed to be in Israel that was supposed to be lined in cedar. And that was the house of the Lord. And so 16 years prior, they had went and they had purchased from Lebanon and imported at great expense and at great effort to bring in cedars that they could line the inside of the temple. But as soon as they found resistance, they gave up. And what they decided was, is we're not going to use the cedar to build the house of the Lord. We're going to use the cedar that is owed to the Lord, that, the, that, the, that is demanded of by the Lord. And we're going to use it to build our own houses, to give ourselves what we want. And God is pointing this out and he's drawing this out that they could see what their, where their devotions ultimately lie. To see where their loyalties ultimately lie. Then, I want you to notice something else that he does. He draws out time. 
He says, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. In other words, I don't have time and it's not a good time. I mean, how many things do we justify with that exact excuse? I don't have time and it's really not a good time. And then he says, but I can't help but notice, verse 4, that it is a time for you yourselves to dwell in panel houses. So it's not a good time for you to rebuild the temple. It, you don't have time to build me a house, but you seem to have plenty of time to do far more than just a thrown together lean-to for yourselves. You have paneled houses. Again, he's getting to priorities, isn't he? If you show someone your calendar and your bank ledger, you can almost always find out what they worship. You can always find out what their priorities are, what their values are, where their loyalties and devotions lie. And here is God saying to his people that it's apparent to me that you are self-medicating your self-pity with self-indulgence. I wonder if you could identify that pattern in your life. Maybe you've had a diagnosis that you didn't expect. Maybe your job is harder and you always wonder if it's threatened. Maybe your marriage hasn't gone well. Maybe you've experienced the loss of someone that is close or dear to you. Maybe it's been the rejection of your children. But whatever the case is, you've experienced great loss and trauma in your life. And maybe the, in, the reflex that you have in you is that what I need to do is I just need to focus more on myself. I need to try to give myself all the sensualities that I desire, all the, make all the purchases that I long for, indulge myself in every way that I seek to desire. That after all, after all that I've endured and after all that I've faced and after all that I've known, certainly I deserve self-indulgence well, if you identify with that pattern at all and I think at different times in our lives we all do then I would want you to see the next sequence in the pattern that suffering often turns to self-pity and self-pity turns to self-indulgence and then self-indulgence leads to hopelessness I mean if you're honest with you you really can't blame them from going and building themselves nice homes can you They've lived for seven decades in a foreign, hostile land as slaves to a foreign, hostile king who made them do all kinds of things, take on all kinds of names, and they just want to come home and have some comfort. They want to be able to come home and have life as they always imagined that it could be if they were not captives to the Babylonian oppressors. And so you can't blame them that they would come home and build themselves the most opulent and nicest homes that they could build for themselves but God is getting to the point and he said but then what that's the existential question that's facing Israel and that's the existential question that's facing you and I sure maybe we try to self-medicate with self-indulgence and we sit, go take ourselves on the greatest vacations and we buy ourselves the nicest cars and we get ourselves the the best memberships and we own ourselves the nicest homes maybe we take and we promote and and seek every promotion at our positions that we can and take every raise that we can and we buy ourselves nicer things but the thing is as soon as you buy one home you find a nicer one as soon as you eat one meal you're still hungry for the next one as soon as you buy one car it immediately goes down in value and you already find one that you like better than the one that you have that the question is is but then what when you try to medicate with self-indulgence, you've started yourself down a path of no return where you're never going to be able to find the bottom. This is what God points out to them. He says in verse 6, you've sown much, but you've harvested little. 
You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves with the nicest clothes, but you never, no one is ever warm. You earn wages, and see if this just sounds like your life, but you feel like you're always just packing it into a bag with holes. That you make your wages and you try to use those wages the best that you can to make yourself as happy as you can. But it's like you're taking those wages and you're stacking them in a, in a bag filled with holes. That this is what the pursuit of happiness feels like for you. This is what the pursuit of purpose feels like for you. This is what the pursuit of contentment feels like with you. You always think, if I just have this and then you get it and you're not content. If I just get that, then I'll be content. And you get it and you're not content. If I just get that promotion and you get it and you're not content. And it's like stuff money in a bag. And so he says, ultimately, in verse 9, you looked for much, and behold, it came to little. See, the problem, the problem with self-medicating, your self-pity, your self with self-indulgence, is that it's an exercise in futility. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. You're just too needy. You can never satisfy all of those needs. You're just too thirsty. You can never drink enough. You're just too hungry. You can never eat enough. You're just too possessive. You can never have enough. There's never enough. There is a vacuum of the soul that the possessions and the positions cannot fill. And so God gets real with them for a second. And he gets real with us for a second. He says, in the midst of your ruins... In the midst of your attempts to focus on yourself for a little while, does it feel like you're chasing after the wind? Doesn't it all feel like vanity? Doesn't it all feel empty? Don't you still feel lonely and sad when you go to bed at night? Doesn't it all just feel hopeless? Consider your ways. Consider your ways. Consider your attempts at self-medication and recognize their futility and then consider your Lord. Then consider your Lord. See, the temple had two primary purposes in the land of Israel. The first was, is that the temple was the evidence of the presence of God among his people. That there, right in the center of town, upon the mount, Mount Zion, was, was the temple. And it was there, the evidence that God dwelled with his people, unlike any other God in all the world. That God would provide for them and God would protect them. And so they could see that temple up on the hill and know, if God is for me, who can be against me? You can imagine the Jewish man back in antiquity going out. And he's got to go to a, a hard day at the court or he's got to go for a hard day at the shop or a hard day of tending the flock. Perhaps it's been a, a year of drought and the ability to provide for his family is hanging over him and he's worried to death about it. Maybe one of his children is rebelling or maybe, thing, maybe he's had a fight with his wife and he steps out filled with all kinds of noise in his head, all kinds of issues in his life. But he looks up and there's the temple. There's the temple over the horizon. And in an instant he hears, if God is for me, who can be against me? There is the presence of my God. I know it's going to be okay. Imagine the mom. She goes and her responsibility at the time is to disciple the children and to train them up in the way that they should go, to educate them. What an incredible task. The Proverbs 31 woman says that she manages the estate and she stays up to the wee hours of the morning spinning the wheel to make sure her family is clothed. 
You can imagine her stepping outside with all of the burdens and all of the, the disciplinary issues in the home and all of the responsibilities that have crashed down on her shoulders to go and to hang up her laundry to dry. And there over the horizon is the temple. There's the temple to remind her, yes, yes, you have responsibilities, but there is a Father in heaven who has taken responsibility for you too. Where God is for you, who can be against you? So off in the horizon of Israel, wherever you would look, you would see there at the Tower of Refuge, the Temple of Solomon, the presence of God to comfort you, but now it's gone. For 70 years, that refuge has been rubble. And in ways that perhaps those who had never seen it can't even begin to articulate, they feel a sense of vulnerability and insecurity that's palpable. And so God begins to speak to them. And he says, in the midst of your insecurity, in the midst of your vulnerability, consider your Lord. When you behold your ruined life, when you behold your ruined temple, when you behold your ruined city, consider your Lord. Consider your Lord. In fact, he gives these three instructions, and they're really kind of strange instructions that he gives to them. This is in the second of the four oracles. He says there in, uh, beginning in verse 2, he says, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you that saw this house in its former glory? And how do you see it now? The first instruction that he gives them is a really strange one. He basically says, look at the ruins. Look at them. Behold them. Don't look away from them. Why is that? See, what he's doing is he's drawing out the object of their faith. He's drawing out the object of their faith. It is not true Christian faith to turn a blind eye to any hard reality. That's not faith. That's wishful thinking. And so he's forcing them to, to look at the hardship of what they're facing and the uphill climb that it seems to build and the insurmountable circumstances that seem to be looming over them. And he says, Look at it and behold it. What do you trust? Where is your faith aimed? Where does your hope lie? And the second instruction he gives them, you'll look and it'll be there in beginning in verse 4. He says, yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I have made with you. When you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst, O Fear not four times in just a few verses, God says, all right, look at how big your problems are. Look at how devastating the, ruin, the ruins are. Look at the rubble that is the temple. Look at your diagnosis right in the face. Look at your disappointment and loss and grief and sorrow and look it right in the face. Look at the hardest things that you cry yourself to sleep. Look them right in the face and don't be afraid. That's the worst thing you can tell an anxious person, isn't it? Don't be anxious. Uh, that seems to almost add, now I'm anxious about the fact that I, I'm still anxious, even though you told me not to be anxious, right? He's going somewhere. Again, he's drawing out the object of your faith. The source of your fears shows you and leads you to the source of your faith, the source of your confidence. So it leads to the, the final instruction that he gives them there, and he says, work for I am with you. This is the exact opposite advice that everybody is given when they're suffering. In Western, the Western world. In the Western world, when someone's suffering, what do we say? All right, take a time out, focus on you for a while. 
Take a time out. Don't worry about anything else. Don't worry about anybody else. You just go lay on a beach, be with yourself for a little while. And there's that, there's fine place for, for meditation and quiet and retreat. But God says the opposite to his suffering people. He says, don't lay down the don't lay down the hammers. Don't lay down the nails. Don't lay down the responsibility. Now is not the time to focus on yourself. Now is to especially focus yourself on something greater than you. So now is exactly the time to focus yourself on a work that is bigger than the ruins that you see surrounding your life. Because it's tethered to a promise. And it's a promise that all three of these instructions are tethered to. Work for I am with you. Don't be afraid because my spirit remains in your midst. My presence is right there. The object of your faith, in other words, is not the temple. It is God. The object of your hope is not your strength, it's not your well-being, it's not your ability to come through. Your hope is God. It is not your inner strength, it is not your inner morality, it is not your inner ability, it is God. Your hope to accomplish the work that is far greater than you and the, what is drawn out of you when you begin to exert that work is that God is the object of your faith. You see, if your hope is not tethered, to what you have, or how others view you, or what experiences you've had or haven't had, but instead is tethered to who God is, and what God has done, and the promise of God's presence, then your, your ruins are not, the stop, are not the stopping place of hope. They're not the stopping, they're not where hope quits on you. And your weakness is not the finish line of hope. And your, your sins are not the finish line of hope. And your inadequacy and your weakness are not the finish line of hope. Instead, they become the starting place for God's glory to be channeled through you. Throughout this, he is calling himself the Lord of hosts. This is a reference to God as sovereign king, the Lord of all heavens, the God of all gods. And so what is happening here is he is saying, if you will get to work, if you will not be afraid, if you will look at the ruins and you will rely upon me, what you are going to witness is how I will work and demonstrate my sovereign wonder in your midst. In other words, you'll be able to say in a way that you haven't been able to say in a long time, when God is for me, who can stand against me? So whatever your ruins are, whatever your weakness is, whatever hardship you're facing, whatever rubble you're standing over in your life, as long as your hope is not tethered to what you feel, but into whom you know, oh brothers and sisters, you are standing on solid ground. When you look at the ruins of your life, consider your Lord Consider your Lord. And when you need peace, consider your Lord. So he spends the first five verses of chapter 2 explaining to us what we're to do. Giving his people instructions. And he takes the next verses 5 through 9 to tell them exactly what he's going to do. And I love the fact that God always tells us what he's going to do. As he's calling us to do what he's called us to do. And so he tells them he's going to do three things. First, he says, my spirit remains in your midst. Then he goes on in a second in verse 6. He says, for thus says the Lord of hosts. There's the Lord of hosts again. Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. What's he saying there? He said, I'm coming. And I'm coming in a powerful way. 
And when I come, I'm going to come and I'm going to remain. I'm going to stay. In other words, you build the temple and you rest assured that my glory is going to fill that temple. He keeps going. What else is he going to do? Look at what he says. He says in verse 9, he says, the latter glory, let me, let me go just before that. He said, verse 7, and I will shake the nation so that the treasures of all nations shall come and I will fill with his glory this house, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. In other words, you think Solomon's temple experience brought you comfort. You think Solomon's temple promised you my presence. You think all of that, but I'm telling you, I am coming in a way. I am coming with a visitation that is greater than anything Solomon could have ever beheld. I am coming in a way that Moses never saw. So that's what it gets to the word shake here. What, what does he mean by that? If you go back to the Old Testament and you see the way that God would often have visitations with his people, you think all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and the spirit is hovering over the chaos of the seas and the darkness of the universe, and then there is a violence that is brought upon it that brings order, and the day is separated from the night, and, and the plants are filled, and the systems are initiated. You think back to Sinai. Thereafter, they've been delivered out of Egypt. They're brought to the top of, of brought to the base of Sinai. And it says that the ground begins to shake and the earth quakes and the mountains and lightning strikes and thunder booms and a cloud of the presence of God descends there. Elijah sees something similar in 1 Kings chapter 19. When the earth shakes, it is the evidence of a visitation of God that is particularly present, particularly powerful, and particularly awesome. But it's interesting that he says that the latter is going to be greater than the former, isn't it? Because the temple that they're building is not greater than the first temple. It's actually kind of an embarrassment to them. They don't like it. They're not proud of it. Solomon had built a nat uh, one of the man-made wonders of the world. And here they're kind of scraping together and, and putting together a rock here and some wood there. In fact, that temple is going to be destroyed too. Herod's going to build a great temple, but that temple in AD 70 is going to be... In other words, there's more ruins to come. What's he talking about? That temple was always supposed to be rendered obsolete, you see. That temple, the temple they're building now, it was always a placeholder. Yeah, God's glory is going to fill that temple. But there is a more powerful visitation of God coming. And it is when God puts on flesh and God himself splits the sky and is born to the virgin, is born on the earth. This is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12. I tell you something greater, greater, see that word there again, greater than the temple is here. That Christ Jesus himself is the temple. Christ is the meeting place with God. Christ is the presence of God. Christ is the nearness of God. Christ is the one that comes as a powerful visitation to shake the earth and to cause the demons to tremble. That his people might find hope. That his people might no longer feel vulnerable. That his people might no longer feel insecure. In fact, the ruins are going to come upon this temple too. And he says in that passage I read at the beginning of the service from John chapter 2 that you're going to destroy this temple. But in three days, I'm going to raise it up. And brothers and sisters, is that not what we celebrate this Easter? 
that the greatest, greater temple has come and the greater temple has visited upon us and the greater temple has been destroyed and then resurrected three days later. And do you remember what he said after the resurrection? Do you remember the promise? It is the fulfillment of the role of the temple in the people of God. He says in Romans, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, as he's, being, as he's ascending to heaven, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. My presence is with my people. So don't feel insecure. Look at the ruins. You want peace? How do you have peace? You want glory? It's not chasing after relationships. It's not looking for another sexual relationship. It's not hoping for another promotion. It's not buying yourself a nicer car. It's not building yourself a nicer house. It's possessing the Son of God as your Savior and be better yet, being possessed by the Son of God. It's who you have, who is now with you, so that you can look over the horizon of the rubble of your life, over the horizon of the ruins of your schedule, and say, but my Christ is with me. And if Christ is with me, who can stand against me? Consider your Lord this morning, brothers and sisters. And finally, consider your foundation. I said earlier that there are really two reasons, that two, two roles that the temple played in the life of Israel all those years ago. The first was that it was the promise and the evidence of God's presence right there in their midst. The assurance that God was for his people, God was with his people, and God would protect his people and provide for his people. The second purpose is it was a place for the atonement of their sins. It was the place in which they would go and they would offer sacrifices to the Lord. You see, the temple was in one sense a place of of transcendent glory, transcendent beauty, a place of, of hope. And the temple was, on the other hand, a solemn, bloody place where sins were cast upon, where wrath fell down, where death took place because God was providing a way for his people to be delivered. And so the wages of sin being death, there, there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. And the temple was the place right there in their midst that reminded them, I am a sinner. My sin separates me from God. But God has made a way and God is providing a way that my sin can be overcame, that it can be forgiven, that I could be reconciled with God himself. And so there's a sense in which, because they're coming back from a Babylon that was the result of their sin, that what we see in the command to reconstruct the temple is that God is committed not to rescinding his covenant with his people, but to renewing his covenant with his people. And I wonder, there may be some of you, this is the first time you've been in church in a long time, and I wonder you hear me say, I am so, so thankful that you're here. And maybe you've felt the sense of the, of the Lord chastening you or drawing you back into the church. And I wonder this morning if you would hear what Haggai has said and that you would say, God, I want to renew my covenant with Christ. I want to renew my commitment to Christ. I want to be right with Christ and enjoy the presence of Christ so that I can walk through life with the certainty that when God is for me, none can stand against me. And so he's working in his people and he's reminding them of the foundation of their faith. And he does it in a way that if we're not careful is discouraging, but it's not discouraging. It just takes us a second to get there. The first thing he says to us is, you contaminate. Now, I know all of y'all got up, put on your nice Easter clothes, got your kids dressed to go. You can come to church and I can tell you that you're a contaminant. Like, I know you're excited about that. But this gets to the essence of what he's been saying. If you go and you look and you begin looking at 
at verse 10 through, chapter, through verse 14 of chapter 2, he'll, he'll begin telling you a, a strange tale of, of how someone who touches a corpse goes to the holy man and the holy man is defiled. The defiled man is not made holy. See, that's how it happened. The chief concern that God has is he wants a holy temple that's been built by holy men. But as you go out throughout the scriptures, there's no such thing as holy men. That whatever they touch, whatever we touch, whatever you touch, whatever I touch is contaminated by my sinfulness. That I don't make the world a better place, I make the world a worse place. And so how is it that I'm going to be able to build of anything, of any good use? How is it that I can construct a temple and, and be a part of any work of God in any meaningful way? Well, that's what he's getting at. Is it's by grace. It's by grace. Yeah, yeah. If, 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 you t- if I was back in the day, if I would have been offered sacrifices and been ceremonial cleansed and you were a leper and you came and touched me or you had touched a corpse and you touched me, I would not have made you holy. You would have made me unclean. But God was going to make a way that all of us could be made clean, you see. You contaminate, but God propitiates. And I'm going to explain more about what that means here in a second. See, he goes to him and he says, okay, begin laying the, the foundation. Begin putting one rock on top of the other rock. Go ahead and, and get started in, in what I'm doing. And he says, now, consider from this day forward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? Here's what he's saying. Okay, before you obeyed me, before you followed me by faith, before you trusted what I said in the light of the rubble and against the oppression, before you responded to me while you were building yourself paneled houses, while you were trying to self-medicate with self-indulgence, how did that fare for you? Did, did you feel like things were going well? Did you feel satisfied with your life? Did you feel content with your life? Or did you find yourself always looking for something more? Did you find yourself always empty at the end of the street? So before the foundation was laid, before you got to work, how was life? Of course, it's a rhetorical question. Life was hard. Life had no purpose. Life had no meaning. Life had no significance. They didn't know where they were going or what they were doing. They were just trying to buy stuff. So he says, verse 17, I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hell, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider, though, from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day forward, I will bless you. This is him saying, I'm going to provide grace for you. How can an unholy people become a holy people to build a holy temple? By God's grace. By God making a provision. And so you see, the foundation that they were laying was both literal and it was figurative. In a literal sense, they were building a foundation there where the temple would be built. But in a figurative sense, it was the first time in years, decades, they had trusted the Lord. It was the first time in decades that they had acknowledged that they were sinners before God. And there was a need for the temple where their sin could be atoned for, where their sins could be forgiven. It was the first time where they said, God, I'm going to live by your way and not by my way. And I wonder this morning if the Lord is calling you to begin laying this foundation of your life. I wonder if the Lord has begun calling you to to come and to acknowledge that you've been trying it your way and your way isn't working. And so you would come and you would lay down the foundation and say, Lord, I want to obey you today. I want to honor you today. I want to recognize that there has to be a place in which my sins are taken away. See, that's, that's what God is preparing them for, for propitiation. See, 
we often think about the forgiveness of our sins, but did you know that your forgi- the forgiveness of your sins is not enough for you to have a relationship with God? You can't stand morally neutral in the presence of God. Adam and Eve tried that. You can't just have your sins forgiven. You have to have righteousness credited to you too. That's what propitiation does. Propitiation is your sins, everything broken about you, everything nasty about you, everything perverse about you, everything, everything in your life that is self-centered. It's all of that being stripped from you and being cast upon Christ. And it's everything that's right about Christ, everything that's righteous about all of his obedience, all of his suffering, all of his perfect, uh, his perfect following of the Father being taken from him and credited to your account instead. You see, in the history of humanity, there was never anyone who an unclean person could go and touch and that person wouldn't be made unclean until the one who was actually clean came. See, Christ came and Christ was fully God and Christ was fully man and Christ was righteous and holy and truly clean. And he came as my representative and he came as your representative. And when the leper reached up to touch the son of God, the leprosy was healed from his body and Christ was not defiled. The man was made clean and Christ said, you are healed. Go and sin no more. The bleeding woman, she comes and it's probably been decades since she's ever touched another person. When she came into the city, in the city center, she was heaped shame upon shame. And she had to declare, unclean, unclean, unclean. Because if anyone touched her, any priest, any common man, they were unfit for worship and had to go through a ritual cleansing process because she had contaminated them and defiled them. But in the throngs of the crowd, she reaches up and she grabs the hem of Jesus' garment. And grabbing the hem of Jesus' garment, what does Jesus say? He says, my power has went out from me. In other words, her contamination didn't go out from her to him. His holiness went out from himself to her. That her faith had made her well. There is one who is capable of the exchange that we need. There is one who is capable of both atoning for our sins, forgiving us of our sins, and crediting our account with his own righteousness. The question that's facing you and I this morning is will we look up to the ruins of his cross and acknowledge him as our king? When we look up to him in the ruins of his cross and recognize that his cross should have been our cross. When we look up to the ruins of the cross and recognize that he is our Lord. When we look up to the ruins of the cross and recognize that it's self-denial and not self-indulgence that is the way to life. When we look up to the ruins of the cross and recognize that the way to a life of significance, satisfaction, and contentment comes through dying and not trying to live. That is... Consider your foundation. What is the foundation of your life? What is your life built upon? Is it built upon trying to stuff your sack full when it's filled with holes in the bottom? Or is it built upon the solid rock of Christ, the chief cornerstone? Let's pray to the Lord together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. 
We look forward to seeing you soon.